What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Matt Kelly looks at a former Walmart lawyer who has sued the company for allegedly wrongful termination. How to mobilize for an internal investigation is reported in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. John Rausch explains what is trade-based money laundering. How can you move towards a more agile compliance and internal audit function? What steps can you take to safeguard a compliance program during COVID-19 in the NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog? Should the role of the CCO be expanded? We take a look at uh, that issue. How can you use data analytics in a compliance regime? Is a new cyber compliance playbook required? And get the author or co-author, Rod Rosenstein. How can you handle an internal investigation during COVID-19? Some of the top podcasts this week were part two of Ellen Hunt and the four-part series on the Compliance Life on Compliance and Coronavirus. We had three interesting podcasts. Megan Doherty explains why you should be pod curious. Andrew Rawson on the new normal of employee relations. And John Petrovsky and Jim Bellin on reopening the economy. Also, Compliance Week will have its virtual conference next week, and I link to information and registration in the show notes, so check that out as well. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 205 for the week ending May 15th, 2020, the not-so-fast edition. As Federal Judge Emmett Sullivan reminded the Justice Department this week, he, not they, run his courtroom. But self-distancing Tom, i.e. the compliance evangelist, and Jay are back to consider some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. So, Jay, what say you? I say let's go back to Arkansas and find out what's happening in the home of Walmart. So, Jay, what's happening there is an interesting wrongful termination case where the um, a former Walmart lawyer has sued Walmart for his alleged wrongful termination, and he claims that he refused to change a internal investigation around uh, FCPA allegations against Walmart in Mexico, and that led to his termination. It's uh, an interesting claim. It's certainly one... Uh, Wrongful termination is something we have seen before. There's a couple of things that I'm not sure if it passes the smell test or exactly what, because, uh, number one, the report he wrote was well over five years ago. And um, so if Walmart was going to take action against him, uh, typically you take action pretty quickly after that. Uh, Second, it was... Uh, he claims this was a setup because someone who he was uh, either counseling or 
worked for him or something um, claimed he uh, that person was going to be fired. So that person claimed that this lawyer had sexually harassed her or otherwise engaged in sexual discrimination. And that uh, led him to be terminated or the pretextual uh, reason to terminate. And when you've got to have four or five different reasons to get to the actual termination, just uh, kind of hard for me to, to really think there's something there. But uh, he says Walmart tried to get him to change a report and he refused to. So uh, I'm going to be interested to hear what they say under oath. So we've got a couple articles uh, to support that. We've got Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, on his radical compliance, and also our friend Dylan Tokar over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Also up from Risk and Compliance, uh, we have a panel uh, of attorneys speaking with uh, Sashin Verma over at Deloitte, and the subject they're discussing is Compliance Brief, Mobilizing for an Internal Probe. The specter of an internal white-collar crime can place a significant drain on any business, says Sachin Verma, a managing director with the forensic practice of Deloitte. Verma and a panel of legal specialists discuss common challenges organizations may face as they work through an internal investigation. The panelists include Kara Brockmeyer, a litigation partner and member of the white-collar and regulatory defense team at Deborah Voice and Plimpton, John Hillebrecht, partner at DLA Piper and national co-chair of the firm's white-collar corporate client group, and Lucinda Lowe, a partner at Steptoe and Johnson LLP. Vermer asks, during the early stages of an internal investigation, how can senior management and company boards prepare for what's needed? Brockmeyer says early scoping of the issues and investigative steps can help manage time and costs and generally build credibility with government investigators if the issue requires disclosures. Other early actions may include notifying insurance companies about potential directors and officers' claims, preserving documents, and considering options, for example, self-disclosure and cooperating for interacting with the regulators. Hillebrecht looks at other considerations, which include vetting issues related to disclosing the probe to government investigators, and if that route is taken, analyzing the legal framework on which the investigation is based. Lowe identifies the internal group who will manage the external response, whether it's management or the board, should help ensure that there's a single and consistent source of information coming from the organization. The decision to disclose an investigation to regulators often garners cooperation credit from the government. What should leaders consider uh, when undertaking this option? Hillebrecht says a decision to self-disclose, if the decision to self-disclose is made, the company must be 100% committed to cooperating with government investigators. Lowe says self-disclosure raises many issues, one which may be in many jurisdictions. Enforcement policies require disclosure of all information about culpable individuals for full cooperation credit. And Brockmeyer says that self-disclosure can set the tone for a cooperative relationship. Of course, even if a company doesn't self-disclose, it can still receive full cooperation credit for conduct during the investigation. However, the government's investigate expectations for what constitutes full cooperation have expanded. This is the first of a two-part series. The second article will be, uh, will be part of the Compliance Brief series, and will focus on Compliance Brief COVID-19 Disrupts Internal Probes. 
So, Jay, next up from our good friend John Roush over at his most excellent blog, Dipping Through Geometries, he takes a look at trade-based money laundering. And I would really urge every compliance practitioner to read his post, which, of course, we've linked to in the show notes, because trade-based money laundering is one of the um, key ways that nefarious organizations will literally launder money. And typically, banks and other financial institutions have more robust money laundering compliance programs and anti-money laundering controls. But Corporate uh, commercial corporations don't have uh, as robust any money laundering control. So um, years ago, Jay, I uh, came across a trade-based money laundering scheme that was reported out of the L.A. Times that literally was laundering money by a Mexican drug cartel, was littering money through the U.S. with the purchase of um, teddy bears. So it just goes to show that it really doesn't matter what the company is making or selling. um, Anything can be used for trade-based money laundering. And it's something that every compliance practitioner needs to be aware of. The report itself has uh, five categories of recommendations for uh, any uh, trade-based money laundering programs. Uh, So I'd really uh, uh, urge uh, anyone uh, to read this because the GAO report that John bases his blog post on underscores the importance of trade-based money laundering as a key, though inadequately protected against component of uh, money laundering on a worldwide basis. And this is uh, uh, just doesn't get enough play in our space of commercial corporations. The writer is Alex Mok Chen, and uh, I will definitely butcher this name. Uh, recently, they spoke to a woman named Alkistis Gikiasi, who is known as a compliance expert in internal control and regulatory affairs professional. She has gained a lot of international experience thanks to the various positions she's fulfilled, initially in the field of external audit and later in internal audit. From internal audit, Alkistis ended up in Cyprus, where she's in charge of the compliance department of an international financial services company. From your experience, what's the best model of cooperation between internal audit and compliance functions within a company in the financial services sector? Uh, She says that she can start by identifying compliance and internal audit as key control functions in the financial services sector. Both internal audit and compliance are committing in serving the board of directors and key stakeholders of the organization. They are also aiming to achieve adherence to efficient and effective policies and procedures which are complying with the regulatory requirements and are safeguarding the position of organization toward the achievement of its strategic objectives. Compliance is widely identified as the second line of defense, while internal audit is the third line of defense. Compliance is using a structured methodology to achieve the following purposes. It's conducting risk assessment, which are important tools for establishing proper monitoring programs. It's reviewing resources allocated to the implementation of policies, procedures, and sound controls. And it's communicating to senior management and the board the relevant needs of what are varying between the devotion of human capital, appointment of experts, training, and outsourcing. Where, government compli- where corporate governance is flourishing and prevention is among the key preven- principles that are guiding people 
in this situation. The participation of compliance is key in the adequate implementation of business strategies. So strategically, compliance is bringing awareness to the business and is facilitating sustainable business structures. On another similar note, the internal audit function is independently conducting risk assessments and it's building its own audit plan. Is this an integral part of corporate governance of the organization, and will it cooperate and provide valuable contributions to the internal auditor in terms of deficiency recovery planning? So the word synergies can be translated to the need for the engagement, and one function having a sound understanding of the role and contribution of the other shall be able to engage and openly communicate towards the other for both to effectively exercise the roles and serve their organizations. Entities operating in the financial services sector are consistently seeking, seeking, progressing, and developing new or improved digital products and disruptive technologies. A good example to mention is the regulatory framework around the suspicious financial transactions, which require timely identification of suspicious transactions, as well as efficiency in terms of investigation and reporting to regulators. The business environment poses high risk for implementation of monitoring programs through merely manual processes. Among key risks are human error, non-sufficient compliance with laws and regulations, incomplete or inaccurate data, non-timely identification, and the risk of appropriate record keeping. Agile internal audit in financial service entities heavily reflects the need to respond to the volatility and the rapid change of government. Key stakeholders' expectations and the resources available to provide meaningful recommendations and add value to businesses. And adding value to business incorporates further the need to balance the demands of other stakeholders, such as clients and regulators. It's a it's real interesting article, and I don't think I've done it justice, so we have linked to it in the show notes, and we hope you take a look at it. Tom, next up. Uh, can you talk about what steps you can take to safeguard a compliance program during the COVID-19 pandemic? Jay, we have a second appearance this week on the This Week in FCPA by Kara Brockmeyer, also her partner, Andrew Levine, uh, and Philip Rolick, uh, all lawyers at uh, Debo Voice, uh, wrote in New York University's always great compliance and enforcement blog about some of the things compliance practitioners need to think about in, in safeguarding your compliance program going forward. So uh, starting off with uh, reviewing your risk in a variety of areas, suppliers and customers, natural resources and raw materials, logistic and export control considerations and receipt of government funds. Always high on the list is dealing with third parties. Uh, They uh, point out some plan for upticks in particular areas of compliance, including whistleblower complaints, due diligence activities, back office level reviews, and requests for exceptions to policies and procedures, which they believe will become more common. Uh, They suggest maintaining a strong tone at the top with communications from senior management, tempered with setting clear and realistic priorities for your compliance program. They suggest focusing on tasks that can be done remotely, but not ignoring mission-critical or, indeed, time-sensitive tasks. Clearly, you should leverage uh, securely your technology throughout your compliance uh, program and coordinate effectively with local resources outside of the United States or away from the corporate office. And then finally, and near and dear to my heart, 
document, document, document everything. So uh, a great uh, review from uh, lawyers at Devil Voice and uh, I think some solid advice as a compliance practitioner thinks through their next steps during COVID-19, the health crisis and the potential reopening. So now we uh, take a look at an article, a uh, guest article in the FCPA blog by Klaus Busenmeier. And Klaus asks the question, should the CCO's role be expanded? Many of the recent posts on the FCPA blog have dealt with various aspects of COVID-19. Very personal health concerns, enhanced bribery risk, enforcement, and the possible impact of the operation of compliance systems. Naturally, a lot of this commentary tends to be Uh, It tends to give a rather gloomy outlook. However, Klaus sees this as an opportunity if companies and compliance leaders leverage the huge potential of combining ethics, enterprise risk management, and compliance. Let's start with the interdependency between enterprise risk management and compliance. Still today, compliance and enterprise risk management functions in many corporations work as standalone silos. This is an unhealthy situation in any case, Becomes, but becomes glaringly obvious in a crisis like COVID-19, where there is an urgent need for cross-functional crisis and risk management. In the last two decades, experienced compliance officers have developed a skill designing and implementing processes and projects in a risk-based way across the entire corporation. Moreover, they have done so in the middle of severe reputational crisis, for example, in FCPA investigations. Over the years, compliance officers have designed and implemented the now-recognized three pillars of an effective compliance system, prevent, detect, and respond, including monitoring and remediation. This system is equally valid for relevant risk functions in a corporation. There's another important reason why compliance should be tasked with taking on broader responsibilities for risk and crisis management. Having a clear and solid risk and compliance framework is non-negotiable for corporations, and COVID-19 will put this under even even greater stress tests. Companies are part of society for the good and the bad. They generate wealth and growth for the world, but are also capable of creating significant harm. Many companies are supporting or even driving the fight against COVID-19. This will rightfully remind people and governments that companies are an essential part of society as good corporate citizens. To work these ethical dilemmas is truly part of risk management, of course, closely together with other major players in the company as the legal or human resources function. Now the question is, who in the corporation is best suited to moderate the ethical discussion, taking into account risk exposure and the compliance challenges of corporations? COVID-19 is hopefully a unique challenge for our generation, but it's also an opportunity to bring ethics, risk, and compliance together. Jay, next up, we have another article from the S. Uh, FCPA blog by Sylvia Andriasik. She is a compliance manager at Billfinger SE in Germany, and she uh, lays out how to think through data analytics to help identify and manage compliance risk. Uh, you start with the collection of valid and relevant data. Then, of course, from there, you move to the analysis and interpretation of the raw data uh, going forward, and then you develop a solution around this. Um, The article really, I think, helps the lawyer compliance practitioner think about data, how to use data, and the important uh, ways that data can improve a compliance program. And 
she drew an analogy, which frankly, I had not thought at all about for compliance. And I'm a pretty uh, proficient student of history, and that's uh, the Bismarck Sea Battle of World War II in 1943, where she said a lack of relevant data information increased uncertainty and the uh, information asymmetry made decision-making nearly impossible. So when you can cite a naval battle from uh, World War II as a reason uh, to utilize data more effectively in your best practices compliance program, a big uh, kudos, and you can't see it, but I'm waving my hands in the new uh, social distancing manner in a clap um, for uh, Sylvia. So uh, good job. Of course, we link to it and uh, check it out. Right. In the first of two articles from Compliance Week, uh, we have the first appearance in a long while of Rod Rosenstein, uh, former Deputy Attorney General, and he and his partner, Suman Dantiki, who are both uh, partners at King & Spaulding, come to us with an article entitled, Rewriting Cyber Compliance Playbook, Strategies for the New Era of Data Theft and Economic Espionage. Organizations with valuable intellectual property, sensitive data, and novel technologies face an unprecedented technological risk landscape. Sophisticated hackers, often sponsored by foreign governments, can target any organization. While targeted company data breaches continue to make headlines, there's also a new trend of systemic cyber campaigns with indiscriminate effects. The WannaCry ransomware attack launched by North Korea hit 100 countries and cost more than $8 billion. The NotPetya cyber attack caused worldwide losses of $10 billion. And in a recent case, the U.S. Department of Justice alleged that Iranian hackers stole 31 terabytes of documents and data from more than 315 universities in 22 countries, 30 American companies, and five American government agencies. In response to the regulatory framework surrounding data security, is growing more complex. Federal agencies now consider cybersecurity and regulatory approvals for everything from vehicles to medical devices. This trend will only grow. The Department of Justice has requested that any national data breach notification law include a requirement to promptly notify law enforcement officials. Similarly, the Department of Commerce recently proposed a rulemaking national security reviews of a wide range of foreign communications equipment, and services acquisitions, including providers of cloud services, software, and medical and video devices. Companies need to shift their compliance mindset to address the new landscape and integrate technological defense into the operations by taking these six recommended steps. First, identify threats, establish processes to identify new cyber threats, implement policies, training, and technical actions. Two, address regulatory changes, review new regulatory enforcement actions, and respond with proactive internal assessments. Conduct ongoing due diligence, regularly assess and update vetting of suppliers, providers, vendors, and customers. Manage technological adoption. Participate in the procurement and deployment processes to spot risks and develop mitigation strategies. Update resilience plans, craft resilience plans for data theft and other cyber breaches. And finally, this is a a step after Tom's old heart, document compliance. Document policies, procedures, and compliance measures with an eye towards future inquiries. 
Organizations that adopt a, quote, when, comma, not if, unquote, approach to cyber attacks will take proactive steps that defend against breaches and mitigate damages when they occur. Companies should expect investors, business partners, legislators, regulators, enforcement authorities, and other stakeholders to ask whether they have devoted appropriate attention to technological risk. In compliance, professionals should be able to prove that they have anticipated attacks when prepared to address them. Jay, in our second article from Compliance Week uh, this week, we have Laura Burke and Dominic Strider as guest columnists, and they take a look at uh, internal investigations for the uh, age of coronavirus. And they really focus on um, data, data security, data privacy in a way that I thought was most helpful for the compliance practitioner. So they said, uh, you need to be mindful of data privacy and data security laws affecting electronic transfer, telephone and video conferences. Second, digital dangers. <clears throat> what about hackers and fishers? And are they going to be able to get uh, your data if you're working remotely at home? Uh, never forget your IT professionals because it may be difficult to send e-discovery vendors on site to collect documents. So how are you going to get the documents via an FTP or, or other mechanism? Um, in a reality check, they suggest adjusting to current realities, recognizing that extraordinary times uh, may impact your creation of a cohesive team. So you need to have daily check-ins and video calls with your team. Uh, and that may mean uh, pets and children, at least if they're calling the Rosen household. Um, confidentiality still matters. <laughs> Those laws are still in force. GDPR still exists. CCPA still exists and a variety of others. Think about conducting interviews by video conference and what this means for your actual interview. And then just acknowledge the strangeness of the times we are in. Uh, don't bitch. Just make the best of it. So uh, I thought this was uh, really good because we've had a lot of talk about moving to uh, interviews, investigations in the age of uh, COVID-19 and the economic dislocation. But here we, uh, the, the authors really laid out some uh, very helpful uh, tips going on. Jay, we had a really great week of podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, if you're interested in uh, moving to the CCO chair, I've got a series this month with Ellen Hunt, the CCO at the AARP. This week, episode two went up, which related uh, how you move towards the CCO chair uh, and Ellen's experience. Next week, she's going to talk about what happens when you actually get into the CCO chair. Once again, that's The Compliance Life, one of my uh, new podcasts, I think actually my my newest podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network on Compliance and Coronavirus this week. Megan Doherty, uh, who is my podcast producer, explains why you need to be pod curious during the time of COVID-19. Andrew Rawson talks about the new normal of employee relations, both during and after COVID-19 and in the upcoming reopening. Uh, and then two of my best friends from law school, John Petrovsky and Jim Bellin, came on to talk about how the economy economy may reopen and how markets may play out. John's got an expertise in commercial real estate. Jim is a self-proclaimed contrarian investor. So uh, interesting uh, take from those gents. Over um, on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program this month, I'm looking at written standards. On Monday, we considered operationalization of your code of conduct. On Tuesday, I introduced compliance policies and procedures. 
uh, Wednesday, we revised uh, your policies and procedures and how you do so. Uh, Thursday, we considered policies and procedures on gifts and business entertainment. And uh, Friday, today, we consider policies and procedures on travel. Uh, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program has its own iTunes channel, so you can uh, hang out and check it out on iTunes. Uh, Jay, we also had your colleague, Jesse Kaplan, on the Affiliated Monitor Expert podcast come on this week uh, to talk about antitrust and the uh, 2019 DOJ antitrust guidance. And, Jay, if I could put in a plug for Compliance Week and their annual conference, which they've moved to a virtual event, it's next Monday and Tuesday, May 18 and 19. Uh, I hope you can uh, join me in attending. It's going to be a great conference. Uh, they've got uh, Samantha Powers. It's going to give uh, one of the keynote addresses. Uh, I've got uh, links to registration and information in the show notes. So uh, it's one of the premier conferences annually, and I think it's going this year, Jay, to be one of the premier Premier virtual events uh, of the year. Yeah, it seems that um, the calendar is opening back up, and a lot of things that were canceled earlier in the year are now going virtual. So uh, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, the speakers on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, take us home. On behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 205 for the week ending May 15th, 2020, the Not-So-Fast Edition. We appreciate you spending time with us this weekend, and we hope you and your family have a safe and healthy week ahead. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you would be so kind as to leave a review, it would really help our rankings on iTunes and get the word out about the only weekly wrap-up in compliance and ethics. I hope you will check out some of the other podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. The Compliance Life details what it means to be a CCO and how to get to the CCO seat. Compliance and coronavirus brings clarity and sanity to the compliance professional and business executive with solid business information that you can use for this time. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at next week's top stories in compliance and ethics. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. Be safe. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.